Shalom and welcome to Shalom Ariel and welcome to Sermon 6 on the book of Leviticus with Messianic leader Jacques Isaac Abizon. Today we're going to be reminded how there was to be no leaven whatsoever in any sacrifice that was put on the altar. Because it was set up this way, every mincha sacrifice would cause Israel to reflect back on symbolically what happened during her redemption at the Passover, for in haste she left giving no time for the leaven to work in this newly created nation. And this same warning can be issued to us today. We were to leave the leaven of sin just as quickly from that first day when we were born again. Leaven is a living ingredient and it grows. We need to be aware of its presence and we must not allow the sin to be placed on the altar of our sacrifice to the Lord, which should be our every deed and every word that proceeds from our mouth. We have a choice. We can get on the altar without leaven, or if we bring our leaven with us, the Lord will need to burn it out, and that altar might need to get pretty hot. Another item that we're going to hear about is the salt, and how it was used in selling and trading. And while Esau traded away his inheritance, praise the Lord that our imperishable birthright cannot be traded. And Yeshua did a beautiful trade for us. He gave his riches for our poverty. He gave his righteousness for our rags. And he allowed us to trade our nature for his. This is the best trade we could ever make. For now, we have become the salt of the earth. And our value has infinitely changed. Be blessed as you listen into today's program with Messianic leader Jacques-Isaac Gabizon. And Shalom, Shalom. So let us open our scriptures to Leviticus chapter 2, where we have considered the mincha, which is a gift, which is a tribute to God before saving us. Saving us because all the minchot, plural of mincha, all the minchot or the green offerings were to be placed above the sacrifice, above blood. For us, the mincha represents our thanksgiving to God for sending the Messiah, the final sacrifice. We also have seen how the offering itself reminds us of Yeshua, Jesus himself. It was to be made of fine flour. One word in the Hebrew, solet. This was the most expensive type of flour, for it was so finely crushed and refined that it was the purest type possible, just like Yeshua. Furthermore, it was taken from the exclusive inner kernel, of the wheat, showing that the person was to give his best, the very core of his being, just like Yeshua. And over it, they poured oil, shemen, made of crushed olives, reminding us of the suffering of the Messiah with which we anoint ourselves. And when we proclaim, that is, of course, his name. And overall, they poured frankincense. Frankincense comes from the sap of a tree and gives a very pleasant odor over and above the burnt flesh of the animal. Frankincense, lebona, is also the word for incense. It is a symbol of prayer. But these are not the only elements in the mincha. Along these two, or that is these three, that is two others are listed in this chapter. We have not yet seen one positive and the other negative. Leaven and salt. Let us begin with leaven and see what it represents in the scriptures. We read in verse 11, No mincha which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey, 
as an offering by fire to the Lord. No mincha. And nothing that is offered on the altar should be with leaven. But why not leaven? Leaven in itself is not bad, right? They make good bread with this. The first thing we can see is the context of Leviticus. This law must have been like a memorial of the salvation of the Passover, which occurred some three months ago. At that moment, the moment the Israelites were freed from slavery and the moment they became a nation, a people for God. It was fresh in their minds and the fact that it became law for all offerings and seeing how the Passover is often stressed throughout the scriptures, it was a memorial for all to remember our salvation in God. The events of the Passover, by the way, were were very often recalled throughout the Bible's rendition of Israel history. It is mentioned at least 120 times, from Exodus to the era of the prophets. And what is the relation of the leaven itself with the Passover? You know, at the time of the Israelites' deliverance, at the time because they had to, to flee rapidly, leaven in the bread they were baking was not given time to rise. So they had and leavened bread. In many ways, the Israelites left the leaven behind them in a world that put them into suffering and slavery, and so leaven became a symbol of what is corruption. Right away, the Israelites were told at every Passover to remove leaven from their houses, every single year. Exodus 12, 15 recounts the first mention of leaven in the scriptures. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, But on the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. And to further the memory of their salvation, the Lord commanded that no leaven ever should be placed on the altar of sacrifice. In rabbinical Judaism, it became a symbol of corruption. In the Midrash Rabbah, in the Zohar, they speak of the leaven as the evil inclination. As far as today, the memorial still holds. Passover is referred some 27 times in the New Testament alone, pointing to that symbol of corruption we should move away all the time. Yeshua spoke of the leaven of the Pharisees in Matthew 16. That is the corruption of religion as we see it growing today in modern-day Pharisaism in many of our churches. In 1 Corinthians 5.8, Paul speaks of the leaven of malice and wickedness, reminding the believer to avoid all impurity and wickedness. And the word leaven or unleavened, you know, is mentioned at least 165 times throughout the entire Bible. Always reminding us to transform in greater holiness during our journey here on earth. But, you know, there may be another reason why leaven is not accepted on the altar of sacrifice. You know that because leaven itself consists of a multitude of living microorganisms, just like plants, animals, insects, even human beings. And because it is alive, that is one added reason why it should not be offered on the altar where the sacrifices have to be slaughtered beforehand. Only what is devoid of life can be offered on the altar. Leaven then becomes a great illustration and a reminder that when we come to God, we are to completely be surrounded, that is to live away our old life and to die to self in order to fully benefit of his blessings. 
You know, we often come to God with a heavy load of preconceived idea and try to fit them all in the altar. It doesn't work this way. This is why sometimes the altar is so hot. Leaven then can take so many different forms in our lives. This is why it's always and constantly vital to seek God's will and His word throughout our journey. The whole process, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 1 and to chapter 3, from the birth offering to the unleavened bread in the mincha, is well summed up in the words of Paul that we find in Romans chapter 6. Look what he says, verse 10, 11, and 13. For the death that he died, Yeshua, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Yeshua HaMashiach. And he adds in verse 13, present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. We, 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 you know, we have to come to the altar of God, dead to sin, always with a willing and obedient mind and away from all corruption and sin, like a child who's always so willing to learn. They say that there are three greatest needs for every man. To be dead in the Messiah, to be dead to sin, and to be dead to what the world thinks. And this is not done once, by the way, but daily. You see what else Paul says? Who was actually very familiar with the temple and the sacrifices, in, in the, that is the daily sacrifices there. See what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I affirm, brothers, by the boasting in you which I have in Mashiach, Yeshua, our Lord, I die daily. I die daily. You know, I've never met a fully devoted follower of God who did not have to die daily to a multitude of things that would have a grip on him. Worldly pleasures, people's applauses, greed. We live in a culture of the me, myself, and I. It has to please me before I can come, right? Instead of living for the Messiah. But how, how can we die daily, by the way? Uh, many ways, of course, but let me show you one. By prayers. Prayer. You know that when we pray, we are in communion with God. And when we do that, something miraculous happens. Just as in the natural death of man, the soul comes back to God, so then in moments of fellowship with God, in prayer, we also give our souls to God for cleansing and refining. So every time we are about to begin a prayer, we can say, you know what, I'm going to die to myself. And I'm going to live in Yeshua. By the way, the very word mincha brings us to the subject of prayer today. You know, today if you pronounce the word mincha to a religious Jew, he will not think of offering, but he will think of prayer. This is what they call the afternoon prayer in the synagogues, which is about 12, 12 p.m., uh, for the Mincha Gedola, and the, uh, which is the major Mincha, and at 3 p.m. from the Mincha Ketana, that is the small Mincha. And you know that since the time of Daniel, prayers were offered three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. This is where the origin is. We read that Daniel continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, because he knew the power of prayer. 
This tradition must have stemmed before the time of Daniel, since we're told that he did as he previously did, referring to the time before the captivity when the first temple was standing. Now, this tradition was followed by Peter, who we see praying in Acts chapter 10, where we read that Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. The sixth hour is noon, by the way, the time of the mincha. Peter kept the custom of praying at noon, where he offered his mincha. Daniel, Peter, and many others like Paul died daily. This is what we hear of them after so many hundreds of years. Now, besides the avoidance of leaven, there's another element mentioned in the mincha offering. This one, however, is positive. It is to be added to all offerings of the altar. It's salt, salt, which is a constant reminder of God's promises and eternal promises in our lives. See Leviticus chapter 2.13. It says, Every mincha of yours... Moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of God shall not be lacking from your grain offering, that is from your mincha. With all your offerings, all of them, you shall offer salt. But why the salt? Why? How did the people of the time understand this symbolism? And you surely know that at the time of the tabernacles and the temples, uh, they had no fridges. And so what they did, they used salt to preserve the food and allowed the people to keep their meat. This is what it allowed for longer periods of time. There was a saying in the Talmud which says, shake the salt of the meat and you may then throw it later to the dogs. Salt then acts in opposition to leaven. One corrupts while the other preserves. And furthermore, salt was also used for healing and cleansing at the time. Ancient writings mentioned salt as a remedy for toothache. And women were said to use it as a mouthwash. Wash, that is, they didn't have any Listerine at that time, of course. And salt also became a synonym for wisdom. In the Talmud, the term salted is applied to a man in the sense of quick-minded man. And in the same book, they likened the Torah to it. They said, as for the world could not do without salt, neither would, could it do without the Torah. So, and in addition to all this, salt was an expensive commodity. Do you remember that the word salary comes from the word salt? Many were paid with salt. So, see, however, how the Lord, by the way, uses the element of salt, that is, when he speaks of the salt of the covenant of your God. What exactly is the salt of the covenant of God? Here, the Lord took this element of cleansing and preservation that was so valued in their society to illustrate his everlasting promises to Israel and to us. There are two passages which explain the nature of God's promises through salt. One has to do with the priestly covenant and the other has to do with the Davidic covenant. Both, by the way, speak of surety of the coming of Yeshua as a priest and as a king. Let's see these two passages. The first one is found is in Numbers 18, 19, speaking to the priesthood in Israel and of their duties and position in the nation. God then speaks to the priest and says, All the offerings of the holy things with the sons of Israel offered to the Lord, 
have given you and your sons and your daughters with you a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendant. This was God's promise that the priesthood will never end. For we always need a mediator between God and man. And the eternal priesthood order is called by David and the author of the book of Hebrews, that is, a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. It's all fulfilled in Yeshua. The promise is now in him, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. He says, and having been perfected, he, he Yeshua, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey me, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This letter, by the way, to the Hebrews must have been written just before the destruction of the second temple, when the human priesthood began to fade away and then disappeared completely from Israel. These words in the book of Hebrews directed the worshiper to the new high priest who is the Messiah who is sitting at God's right hand as our priest and mediator. We will soon see, by the way, later on in Leviticus, how very demanding were the laws for the priests in Israel. So much so that the priests were literally in danger of dying if they made a mistake. These things will further show us the great necessity of the Messiah who is the high priest and and our mediator. This is the point, I believe, of these laws as well. They are a tutor to Yeshua. So the other place where God's covenant of salt is mentioned is in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. This is when the king, the king of Judah, Abiah, argued against the king of Israel, Jeroboam. Right away you see there's something wrong because you're not supposed to have two kings in Israel. Right? It's supposed to be only the king of Judah. This is what he tells him. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David? and to his sons by a covenant of salt. The Davidic covenant and the promise of an eternal king descending from David was understood as a covenant of salt, an element, an eternal covenant, according to God's promise, which will be fulfilled by Yeshua when he comes back as king of kings. So, He who is blessed, as Paul said, and holy, sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. And so for the Israelites and for us today, the covenant of salt reminds us of the eternal promises of the priesthood and kingship in Israel and also of our salvation. Our salvation is actually insult forever and ever. Salt then is a healer, a purifying element, but there is still another aspect to it which speaks to us directly. And this is important. We as believers in Yeshua are salt. Jesus plainly said it in the first century in Jerusalem where the people are very acquainted with the temple sacrifices and with the importance of salt. He said, you are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth. And this is a great responsibility that is given to us. How are we, by the way, salt of the earth? Because we are proclaiming the truth of the Bible. We are the agent of preservation concerning the truthfulness of God. We are the ones who do not only hold on to it, but are proclaiming it to this world. At least, this is what we're supposed to do. 
Notice what Yeshua says after that. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? So the point is that if salt loses its saltiness, it is because it is no salt at all and was never salt to begin with. Salt does not lose its saltiness. Today, you know, tons of food is being wasted because of expiration date. Have you ever seen an expiration date in a salt box, let's say? On the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua was directly referring to the religious leaders who had the label of salt, but they were not salt. And just before this saying, Yeshua gave us the characteristics of the one who is salt. He is the one who is poor in spirit, one who mourns for sin, who is gentle, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He is the one who is merciful and pure in heart. He is the one who always seeks to make peace. Furthermore, he is one who is so different from the world that Jesus says he would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because salt, you know, can be an irritant as well. We are the salt of the earth. So let's season our words with the influence of the Spirit and let others hunger for the taste that preserves life. We look forward to hearing part two of Sermon 6 on our next program. But for now, let's listen in to Messianic leader Jacques-Isaac Gabizon as he answers a pertinent question dealing with Gentiles who are grafted in to the body of Messiah. Exactly what does it mean that Gentile believers in Yeshua are grafted into the cultivated olive tree of Israel? Does this simply refer to the fact that salvation is of the Jews, who as a nation were prepared by God to recognize and receive the Messiah, and that the new covenant was made with them? In other words, because we Gentiles have accepted Jesus as our Savior, we get the benefit of the salvation that was first offered to Israel. Second, do any of the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament apply to believing Gentiles, or is that not the case? If some do, as in some promises do and some promises don't, how can we tell the difference? Well, thank you for this uh, great question. You know, the olive tree mentioned in Romans 11 is the place where both the remnant of Israel and the remnant of the nations meet. The olive tree is not Israel, nor is it the church, but it is the place of spiritual blessings for both groups. This is a missing link in church history and current theology. The scripture says that Israel, who is often estranged from the tree, is actually the owner or the keeper of the tree, for they are the priestly nation from where the word and the Messiah came to us. Consider first the passage of Romans 11.24, where Paul stresses this fact, for it did not take long after the ascension of Yeshua for the Jews to really be pushed out out of this tree. He says, For if you, speaking to the nations, were cut off from what is by nature a wild tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, that is Israel, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
So when a Gentile comes to believe, he is invited to join the olive tree whose natural branches are the Jewish believers. Or as Paul said again in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, speaking to Gentiles, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is before the church was formed. And much of the problem in grasping Paul's argument is that we often forget that the church was originally composed of Jews and later with believers from other nations who joined in. These Gentile believers came in to be grafted into the Jewish-owned tree, so to speak. So today we're under the impression that biblical Christianity belongs to the nations and Israel has lost her place. And as a consequence, when a Jew enters the church, he is often asked to forget or forsake his pedigree, his ancestry. At least this is what the post-millionist and amillionist who, who constitute the majority of Christianity and often also many premillionists as they are redefining their position teach, often subtly. For they find no place for Israel here in the present or in later prophecies. This is why Paul is being very bold in his treatment of this subject, for this problem is 2,000 years old. As for your second question, except for the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, which promises a land and a king in Israel forever, all other blessings could be applicable to all believers, as we have seen in 1 Corinthians 10:11, which says that Israel's history is written as an example for every other believer. For we have the same God, of course. So these were very good questions. And I encourage you to, to listen to the first studies on Israel, past, present, and future. They're on YouTube. Or if you desire, I would send you the notes. Shalom Ariel is a daily radio program emphasizing the Jewish perspective of Scripture. God is not through dealing with Israel, nor will he renege any of the promises he has made to her. Our teacher for this program, Jacques Isaac Gabizon, is a Messianic Jewish believer and Messianic leader at Beth Ariel Congregation right here in Montreal. If you've been encouraged by the messages, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at one 685 5902 or you may write us at info at Beth Ariel, B-E-T-H, A-R-I-E-L, all one word, dot C-A. You are also welcome to join us for our Saturday morning services. We are located at 6297 Monkland Boulevard, corner of Madison in NDG. The message is given in English, but we do offer simultaneous translation into French and Russian. Services begin at 11 a.m. We have Shabbat school for children of all ages, up to and including teens. You may also download audio messages from our website at bethariel.ca and enjoy other in-depth teaching from Jacques Isaac. If you would like to sign up for informative newsletters, log on to our website and add your name to our email list. Shalom Ariel is a listener-supported program. If you have it on your heart to donate, it will be a great blessing for the continuing ministry and outreach of Beth Ariel. Thank you and Shalom Shalom. Shalom.